I believe after this message, if I'm able to present it in the way that God wants it presented, I don't think you'll ever look at Jesus the same way again. And I mean that in a good way. We're going to begin in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, and we'll begin with verse 13, and we're going to read all of the 53rd chapter. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He has brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We know that the Bible is the divinely inspired and inerrant Word of God. That means that every book, every chapter, every word in the Bible is significant. I believe even the amen at the end of the book of Revelation is significant. The apostle John was shown by God all of the things that were going to happen in the end times and all the things that are going to happen during the tribulation. And John at the close of it said, amen. He said, so be it. Amen. There are many, many chapters and verses that we could deal with that have a special significance and speak of the greatest need of mankind. And I believe what we're going to look at this morning is one of those chapters and some of those verses. Now we need to remember that the book of Isaiah was written 700 years approximately before the birth of Christ. As we go through this, keep that in mind. Because Isaiah chapter 53 was written with such an amazing accuracy and such detail about the Messiah that it could only come from God 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Amen. Most of our Jewish friends miss that. 
Dr. James Tour is an American chemist. He's a nanotechnologist. He's a professor of chemistry, professor of material science and nanoengineering, and professor of computer science at Rice University in Houston. You say, so what? Well, here's so what. He's also a saved Jew. Amen. I love listening to Dr. Tour talk. His testimony is a powerful testimony, and it's even on the internet at certain places, and you can hear it for yourself. But he gave this explanation in relation to his Jewish brethren. Most Jews do not read this portion. They may say they have read it because they assume it is on the yearly reading list. Then he explains that in every synagogue, they will read the same passage from the Torah and then take a complimentary passage from the Psalms or from the prophets. Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the book of Acts chapter 8 makes this evident. Remember in Acts chapter 8, Philip is witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. And in fact, verse 30 says, Philip ran to the Ethiopian eunuch and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. In verse 32, the place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? And oh, I love verse 35 because it says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Amen. Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. That's not the only place Isaiah talks about Jesus. He talks about his birth in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. In Isaiah 9, Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And you know, I believe it is possible to read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and miss a whole lot of information about the Lord Jesus as we read through it. I don't know how many times I've read this chapter. I don't know how many times I've referred to it in a message, but like I said, I've never preached from it. But it's so wonderful. And beginning in chapter 52, that's where we have to begin because there we see the presentation of the Messiah, the presentation of the Lord's servant. In chapter 52, verse 13, he says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. That means to deal wisely. That means to prosper. We're going to see what prosperity looks like in the eyes of God concerning his son. It's a word that's used of David in 1 Samuel when he behaved himself wisely. Jesus Christ is wisdom itself. Jesus is wisdom. In the carrying out of the work of our redemption, there appeared much of the wisdom of God. And when Jesus was upon the earth, he conducted himself wisely to the admiration of all people. And God says of him, he shall be exalted, he shall be extolled, and he shall be very high. Now when God says something, folks, it has to happen. God is never wrong, and God does not fail to keep his promises. So when God says something is going to happen, heaven and earth will break apart to make it happen if that's necessary, but it's going to happen. And God said of Jesus, he'll be exalted, he will be extolled, he will be very high. The idea is that God's going to exalt him. Raise him up, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9 says this, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
God has exalted Jesus. And then he says, man will extol him. Man will lift him up. Remember what Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. And then it says, and with both man and God, he shall be very high. The idea of that phrase, very high, is he's going to soar on the heights. And that's what we're doing today. We're lifting up Jesus Christ. Now, in declaring the future glorification of Jesus, Isaiah chapter 52 takes us back to his appearance upon this earth when he took on human form. And verse 14 says this, As many were astonished at thee, or astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. You know what that talks about? It talks about his appearance before the cross, and it talks about his appearance on the cross. Amen. I've said for many years now that if there were some artists who were able to actually paint a picture of what Jesus looked like at his crucifixion, I don't think any of us would be able to look at it. You know, the closest I guess anybody got, and I haven't seen it. I've seen stills from the movie. I've, there's reasons I don't watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, but I think they may have come close to what Jesus may have looked like a little bit at his crucifixion. But we forget that. We're talking about his appearance at the cross and on the cross. See, one of the things that we forget a lot of times when we read the scripture is a simple verse in John chapter 19, verse 1, which says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, this is not the Jewish scourging of 39 stripes with a cat of nine tails. This was the Roman scourging. And studying the Roman scourging, what you find out is that and it was a privilege given to a Roman soldier. That privilege of scourging someone who was about to be crucified was given to the meanest, to the roughest, to the toughest Roman soldier there was. In fact, I believe it was Spurgeon who said that if you had been there on that day, the sound of the scourging would have sounded like the tearing of threads in a tangled loom. It suggested that after about the second or third stripe with the scourge, that the white of the rib cage would have begun to show as his flesh literally hung on ribbons in his back. And the scripture says he appeared after the scourging, his appearance was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He was beaten more than any man had ever been beaten in a Roman scourging. Matthew Henry said he was scourged not under the merciful restriction of the Jewish law, which allowed not above 40 stripes to be given to the worst of malefactors, but according to the usage of Romans. Pilate brought him out after the scourging. Remember, Pilate questioned Jesus, and then he sent him to be scourged, and Pilate brought him out after the scourging, and he presented him to the crowd. And remember what he said? Behold the man. Look at him. Here's the image of a man. Jesus is the image. You know, we live in a day when a lot of people don't know what it means to be a man. Amen. Jesus was a man. Jesus was not a weak man. Jesus was a man. Here's what it means to be a man. It is total self-denial and total donation for the sake of others. That's what it means to be a man. Listen, if this word, this action, this deed, if it's not done in love, it's not done in the love of God. When I preach, it better be done in the love of God. If this thing that I do is not in the best interest of others, it's not being done in the love of God. 
if this message today is not in your best interest, it's not in the love of God, folks. I don't preach to get rich. Ha, 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 right? Missionary Baptist preachers don't preach to get rich. That's the truth of that. And I don't preach just because it's what God called me to do. I don't preach just to get something off my chest. And I don't preach just to choose someone out. When I preach again, it better be in the best interest of God's people of this church, folks. Or I'm not doing what I should do as a God-called preacher. Total self-donation, total self-denial for other people. That's what Jesus did. Look at something interesting here in verse 15. He says, so in this way, in the shedding of his blood and in his sacrifice, so in this way shall he sprinkle many nations. You know what that's a reference to? That's a reference to the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat. Go back and study your Old Testament. When the priest would go in and sprinkle on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and here's a beautiful picture. He's going to sprinkle many nations. Christ's death is pictured in that act of sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. And the sprinkling of many nations is a reference to the salvation of the Gentiles. See, Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews only. He is the Savior of all men. Jew and Gentile alike. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's me and you, mother. I don't think we have any Jewish folks here this morning. We're all Gentiles here this morning. Well, what is the gospel? It's very simple from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It is the message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he says this about Jesus and about his sacrifice. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. Now, what does that mean, preacher? Well, folks, the gospel message goes straight to the heart. I've been through some soul winning classes and I've been taught all kinds of tricks to try to talk to somebody about the Lord. Ask somebody, do you ever think about spiritual things? I asked a young man that one time and he said, no. I said, now what do I do now? They didn't teach me what he's supposed to say yes. But you present the gospel, the gospel goes straight to the heart and it penetrates the heart. It is a penetrating message. In fact, some have suggested this. And I want to try it with somebody, some lost person one of these days. If somebody would just read through the New Testament twice with an open mind and an open heart before they get through the New Testament the second time, they'll come to know Christ as Savior. Just reading the Word of God, just reading the Gospel, that's how powerful it is. The king shall shut their mouth at him. You speak the simple words of the Gospel and boom, it shuts the mouths. The Gospel cannot be denied. The Gospel cannot be disproven. It is the truth. Amen. And this is for that which had not been told them they shall see. The truth of the gospel message will open the eyes of men and women and boys and girls. Just present the gospel. That's all we're called to do. And they begin to see their lost condition and they begin to see the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and that which they had not heard shall they consider or understand as their eyes are open to the truth of the gospel people begin to see their lost condition. They begin to see, I need to be saved. Now that doesn't mean everybody we witnessed who's going to be saved, right? I mean, there are some folks just so hard-hearted and stubborn and all that they will reject the Lord Jesus. Human pride, the pride of life says, I'm sufficient, I don't need a savior. 
But if we will just present the gospel to people, folks, people will come to know Christ. By the way, you realize that if there was no need of salvation for mankind, there was no sense in Jesus coming to this earth and going to the cross. Isaiah 53, Isaiah asked, Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Oh, Matthew Henry said this, Of the many that hear the report of the gospel, there are few, very few that believe it. It's reported openly and publicly, not whispered in a corner, are confined to the schools, but proclaimed to all. It is so worthy of acceptance that one would think it would be universally received and believed. But it's otherwise, isn't it? We present the gospel so many will reject the gospel of Christ. A few believe the prophets. The apostles carried the gospel into the world and many in the world heard it and received it and believed. But really compared to the world population, comparatively few. And today of the many that profess to believe, there are few, he said, that cordially embrace the gospel and submit to the power of the gospel. It's a powerful gospel. And then Isaiah asks this, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Well, what are you talking about, Isaiah? Just look back up to chapter 52 and verse 10 for just a moment. Look what it says. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nations. To whom is the eyes of the Lord revealed? To the nations. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Everybody. And it's revealed as power. It was revealed in the power of the miracles that Jesus performed to confirm his identity. It was revealed in the strong, still voice of the Holy Spirit as he convicts hearts of sin. It's revealed today and was revealed then as he makes the word of God effectual in our lives. The first appearing of Jesus was promised. The first appearing of Jesus was presented 700 years before he came. And then we're told how he's going to appear. Look at verse 2 of chapter 53. It says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What does it mean a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground? Well, what follows explains it. See, many thought that his birth was an insignificant birth. We've got Christmas coming up. I wanted to save this to Christmas, but I just couldn't do it. We've got Christmas coming up and all the world's going to talk about Jesus and talk about Christmas. But the world thought it, at that time was an insignificant birth. He will come up as a tender plant. You know what that's talking about? In fact, the definition is right along this line. It is of a, when a tree falls over, but a twig begins to sprout out of it. You see, we don't pay much attention to that, do we? A sprout coming up. Now, unless you're like me, I'm a gardener. I plant seeds one day and I expect to see them sprouting the next day. I know it's not going to happen, but I love to see that. But it's like a twig just coming up that really nobody pays any attention to. Somebody said this, Christ rose as a tender plant which one would have thought might easily be crushed or might be nipped in one frosty night. He made an entry into the world. But it was an entry that was muchly ignored. How many babies were born that night? We don't know. We know of one. But I'm sure there were other babies born 
that night. I don't think it was necessarily December 24th or 25th, but there were a lot of babies born that night. And he was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's the place where the king resides. He was born in Bethlehem, though. And Bethlehem was so filled with people that night. You know, they didn't have holiday inns. I don't guess we have those much today anymore. I don't know what all we have. But they didn't have hotels like we have today. Somebody would take you into the home. And Bethlehem was so full of people that night, the only place that Mary and Joseph could find to lodge was where? Was in a stable. And Jesus was basically born in a feed trough. How many kings are born in a stable, folks? The world says it's an insignificant birth. But what did Micah say about it? In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. What the world then considered an insignificant birth, folks, is the most significant birth that has ever taken place in the history of this world. Amen. He grew up as a tender plant, silently, without any noise. And some feel that he was from an insignificant family. He had an insignificant birth. He was from an insignificant family. A root out of dry ground. Talks about being born of a family that has little reputation, all right? I mean, where did he grow up? He grew up in the north. He grew up in Galilee. He didn't grow up around Jerusalem, but in Galilee of all places. And it suggests that his family, which was sort of like dry ground, you just didn't expect much out of Joseph and his family. Joseph and Mary. Remember, Joseph was a carpenter. Joseph wasn't a king. And what about Mary? Mary was with child during that period of espousal before she and Joseph were married. Now, that'll get people talking about you too, won't it? And even Joseph, the scripture says, her husband, look at what it says in the book of Matthew, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example was minded to put her away, to release her, dismiss her privately or privately. He came forth from what the world would consider an insignificant family that lived in an insignificant place because if you remember from John chapter 1 when Philip told Nathaniel he had found the Messiah. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, it's sort of like we might say today. We'll pick a place that we don't like and say, can anything good, the only good thing coming out of there is I-30, I-40, I whatever, leaving town. And he asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then we're told, beginning in verse 2, about his appearance. Some would say he had an insignificant appearance that he just didn't look like much. Verse 2b, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. I told you at the outset, you hear this, you're not going to look at Jesus the same way anymore. They thought the Messiah should have some kind of uncommon beauty. When the Messiah comes, he will look like a warrior riding on a great horse. Or he'll have some appearance that will draw us to him, that will charm the eye, that will attract the heart, that will fulfill all of our expectations about the Messiah. But there wasn't anything like that in Jesus, was there? He had nothing extraordinary. He had nothing about him growing up that one would say, this is incarnate deity right here. No, he, he didn't have that. 
And those who saw him could not see any beauty in him that they should desire him. Acts chapter 7, when Moses was born, you know what it says about Moses in Acts? That he was exceeding fair. It says in the book of Exodus, when Moses was born, that he was a proper, and some say that word proper means handsome child. I mean, when Moses was born, his parents said, oh, look at our son. 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, David was of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. The scripture says that King Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And then there's Jesus. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There is no stately form of majesty in him. Dr. James Tour said this, there was nothing in the physical appearance of Jesus that was attractive. See, a lot of times we look at these Renaissance era paintings of Jesus and we imagine he looked like some European fellow, you know, olive skin and all of the good looks and all of these things. Do you want to know what Messianic scholars say about him? I'll tell you in just a moment. If Jesus had looked like the pictures that we see, the paintings that we see, if he had had some movie star good looks, we'd think, well, there's no wonder people followed him. He attracted a crowd the way he appeared. He looked like somebody important. But some Messianic scholars look at this verse, and here's what they say. They think Jesus was probably about five foot four and had crooked teeth. Now, I don't know how they get that from that verse, but that's what some Messianic scholars say. I'm just telling you what they say. But he's saying there was nothing in him that physically attracted people to him. He just looked common. He just looked like an ordinary person. He just looked like you or I might look. Remember the many times that he was able when they were... The scribes and the Pharisees were after him that he was able just to slip through a crowd unnoticed. You know why? He looked like everybody else. Amen. I mean, if he'd looked like Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else, they could have said, there he is, that tall guy over there. But he just looked normal. And then chapter 53, verse 3 says, he is despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The word despised talks about disesteemed, disdained, scorned. Rejected means looked down on. He was looked down on and he was passed over. That's how they saw him. That's how they viewed him. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Sorrows talks about affliction, grief about malady, anxiety, calamity. It's from a word that means to be weak. It's from a word that means to be sick. And in fact, some suggest that Jesus was a man who had pain and was acquainted with sickness. We don't think about that in relation to our Lord, do we? You think Jesus ever got tired? He did. He had to go below deck one time and take a nap. He said, let us go out and away from the people and rest. Somebody said it this way. Jesus said we need to come apart or else we'll come apart, you know. <laughs> and so he got tired. He had a physical body just like you and I have. I don't know what your image of Jesus is when you read the New Testament. Maybe you think of some of these paintings that I've talked about. But I think Isaiah tells us things about Jesus that we never considered. And you get into the study of these words. He says we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Dr. Tur says that means... They looked in and they said, oh, that guy. That's the way they felt about him. We sort of had the image that a lot of people were just ooing and eyeing over him. But he said they just turned their backs on him. They looked the other way. 
Have you ever tried to hide from someone in public? Whether you have or not, okay. Have you ever tried to pretend not to notice someone in public? Just walk away from them like you didn't see them? That's how they treated Jesus. Just ignore him. Just get away from him. We on our first trip to Israel, I won't call his name, but there was a man that when some of us would stand around and talk, we'd stand in a circle so everybody could keep an eye out for him because when we saw him coming, the circle dispersed. That's the way they treated Jesus according to what the Word of God says. Have you ever seen anything or seen anyone that you just sort of want to turn your head, Ooh, I want to look at that? Okay? That's what it's talking about. Listen, have you ever been looked at that way? You know how Jesus felt then, don't you? Last part of verse 3, it says again, he was despised. And the idea there is we did not care that he was despised. The scripture is trying to tell us something. We get the idea that Jesus wasn't despised. Oh yes, he was despised. He was rejected. He was afflicted by men. And then it says, we esteemed him not. You know what that says? We paid him no attention. We just ignored him. Did you ever try to ignore somebody that didn't appeal to you? Welcome to the world of the Messiah, okay? Welcome to the world of Jesus. And then to the world, his death was an insignificant and even a deserved death. Okay? The world thought so. Verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You might say, why was the Lord treated as he was in verse 3? Why was he despised and rejected? Why did he suffer sorrows? And why did he suffer grief? And why did he suffer pain? Why was he ignored? And the answer comes back, it was for us. Amen. That's why he endured those things. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God hath made him to be sin for us or the sin sacrifice for us. Him who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's why Jesus suffered those things. He has borne. He's lifted up and carried away our griefs. He's carried away our sorrows. Same words as in verse 3. He was a man that was acquainted with grief and sorrow but it was our grief and our sorrow that he was acquainted with. When Jesus was suffering on the cross, he cried out what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And look what Isaiah says here in verse 4. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That word esteem means to think, to reckon, to reason, to regard, okay? Here's the Jewish thought. This comes from Dr. Tour. The Jewish thought is this. We thought he brought it on himself. God was punishing him for his sins. We know that he had none, but the Jewish thought is God was punishing him for his own sins. They thought God despised Jesus as much as they did and disliked Jesus as much as they did, that he was his enemy and they were persecuting him because of it. And they thought they were right in doing what they did. Dr. Tour tells this story, his Thankfully, his mother was saved before she passed away. But when she found out he was saved, she, what have you gotten into and so forth? And then she read the New Testament. And he said after she read the New Testament, here was her opinion. He deserved what he got. How 
how dare that young man speak that way to those scholars, to those older men. And whatever happened to him, he deserved what happened to him. Then she read the Old Testament and he said, she said, James, God tried to warn us. God tried to tell us. So the thinking was that while he was hanging there on the cross and he's taking upon himself the sin of the whole world, he's doing it for the very people who are thinking that he deserves to be crucified. <laughs> That's the love of God. That's the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was a significant sacrifice. It was a significant death. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. This is verse 5. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Now I want you to get this. Look very closely at this contrast. It's going to show up on the screen. Verse 4. What does it say? We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Why was he smitten of God? Why was he stricken of God? Because of us. For our transgressions, for our iniquities, he was bruised. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Yes, Jesus was smitten of God, but he was smitten of God because of us and for us. Amen. He suffered for our sins because he had no sin. And verse 6 explains that all we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you know what that word iniquity means? Perversity, moral evil. Imagine this. The sinless Son of God takes upon him all of the perversity and the moral evil and the sin of the whole world to become the sin sacrifice for us. Matthew Henry said it was for our good and in our stead that Jesus Christ suffered. This is asserted here plainly and fully and with a great variety of emphatic expressions. Hebrews chapter 12 says he endured the cross despising the shame, but it was for the benefit of the very ones that were crucifying him. Wounds talks about being pierced through. Bruises talked about literally bruising. He was crushed. His sorrows crushed him from the crown of his head, which was crowned with thorns to the soles of his feet, which were nailed to the cross. Nothing appeared but wounds and bruises. He suffered physical bruising and he suffered Verbal bruising. Remember one time when he was doing the miracles and they said you do it by the power of the devil. The son of God being accused of performing miracles by the power of Satan. And by the way, I mentioned his scourging earlier. His scourging doubtless was very severe because here's probably what Pilate thought. Well, I'll just scourge him and that'll satisfy the people and I'll let him go. Now, Pilate was a man who had spent his lifetime or much of his lifetime judging people. But if he ever misjudged people, it was on that day that he said they'll be satisfied with his scourging. Because what did the people cry? When he, when he said, who shall I release? Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas, release Barabbas. Well, what shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him, they cried. He misjudged the hearts of men. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And then it says, By His stripes we are healed. That word healed means to be cured. It means to heal thoroughly, to make whole. And given the context of this, talking about Christ's sacrifice, it's not talking about physical healing. It's talking about spiritual healing, which is the greatest need of mankind. 
Then in verses 7 through 9, we see the suffering of the servant. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was harassed. He was looked down on. He was browbeaten. Literally, that word means to be tortured. And he opened not his mouth. Mark 14, 65, some began to spit on him and cover his face and to buffet him. That means they struck him with a closed fist. And to send him prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Then Pilate said, Matthew 27, 13, Then Pilate said unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered to him, Never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Again and again he was tried. Before the Sanhedrin, then to the civil courts, and then back to the Sanhedrin. And Pilate even questioned him, and Jesus answered nothing, it says in Mark 15, 5, so that Pilate marveled. He didn't open his mouth. And Pilate had to stand before the people and say, I find no fault in him. Amen. You know, over and over, and I had a few days in law enforcement, and I've heard this. Over and over, somebody be arrested for a crime they did commit, and you know what they do? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm innocent. But here was a man who was totally innocent, falsely accused, suffering a miscarriage of justice, and he didn't say a word. That's our Savior. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was apprehended in Gethsemane. He was taken into custody. He was made a prisoner. He was accused. He was tried. He was judged. And he was condemned. All to the usual laws of that day. And he was innocent. But Jesus never did anything to deserve the charges that were made against him. He had done no violence. He didn't pervert the nation. He didn't preach sedition. He didn't preach an overthrow of the government. He was called a deceiver. He never deserved any of those accusations. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. But the scripture says he was cut off from the living. They sought to take his life, and they did. And who shall declare his generation? Well, I came to that and I said, well, what's that talking about? Because some that I read said, oh, it means that some didn't care that he died before he had children. I don't think that's what that's talking about. But you know, here's a wonderful thing about the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And if you'll read and study the Bible, you'll get those Bible questions answered. Because I tell you what men will do, and, and this particular one I was using did it, They'll just skip over that. I don't understand it either, so I'm not going to write it in my commentary, right? But remember when we studied the 22nd Psalm, and what's the 22nd Psalm about? It's about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's about the suffering of Jesus. And so you get down to verse 30 in the 22nd Psalm, and it says, A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. Who can tell his generation? God said he's going to have a seed. How much is the generation, how great is the generation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who can number how many people have come to Jesus through the preaching of the gospel of Christ? The word of God is wonderful. It's thrilling. It's exciting to get into it and to study it. They hung him on a cross. Verse 9. Verse 9 was fulfilled. Look at it. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. They hung him on a cross between two thieves. 
He made his death with the wicked. But what happened in his burial? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a wealthy man came and said, let me have his body for burial. And Jesus was buried in a tomb that had never been used that belonged to a wealthy man. Do you see the fulfillment of these words that were written 700 years before Jesus was born? If a person can't see that, I, I don't understand what's clouding their thinking. And then we close in verses 10 through 12 of what I call the prosperity of the servant. This tells us that it was all in God's plan, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Okay? He satisfied the sin debt. Our sin debt, not his, ours. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us in verses 19 and 20, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you before God ever created man. In his heart and in his mind, Jesus was on the cross. And the song says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Also notice the contrast, who shall declare his generation in verse 8. And then look again at verse 10. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's further explained in verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. He says he's going to make many righteous because he's going to bear their sin. And he will make it possible for many, many to come to righteousness. And folks, many, many have by repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then verse 12, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. God says, I'm going to give him the highest honors. I'm going to give him the highest honors. Well, what are you talking about? Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Look at the end of that 12th verse, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's why. And we sing that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What a wonderful message God has for us in Isaiah 52 and 53. And I'm just, I don't have a long conclusion of this this morning. It's just this, if you're not saved, recognize Jesus as the one that God has sent to be the savior of mankind in this world. And accept him today, not just as savior, but as Lord of your life and live for him daily. Think of the things that he endured, the things that he suffered for you and for me and serve him as Lord of your life. And then if you are saved, here's what we need to do. We just need to praise God and to glorify God daily for what he has done for us. The scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. There's not a man, woman, boy, or girl in this world that does not need to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And we say, but I'm saved. That's right. But what has God given us to do? To take that message, just that simple message of Isaiah 53, 
the message of the New Testament into the world and tell people about Jesus. One man said one time, he said, just put your eyes on Jesus and tell people what you see. And folks, that's what we need to do. This world, this nation needs Jesus Christ. We studied in the book of Judges this morning how there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Listen, there's no king in America today and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And we need to get back to the standard of Jesus Christ that God has said in this world.